and welcome to this Cove podcast. Today we are joined by the Command Sergeant Major of Forces Command, Warrant Officer Class 1, Darren Murch. Warrant Officer Murch joined the Army in September 1986 and was allocated to the Royal Australian Infantry Corps. During his career, he has served in every leadership position from section commander to regimental sergeant major during numerous postings that include the 1st, 3rd, 7th and 16th Brigades. He has served as an instructor at the School of Infantry, Battle Wing Tully, Land Warfare Centre and as an instructor at the United States Sergeant Major Academy. Additionally, he has filled staff positions at the 1st Division Deployable Joint Force Headquarters within the J3 and J5 branches and in the Future Land Warfare Directorate at Army Headquarters. Warren Officer Murch has been the Regimental Sergeant Major of the 8th 7th Battalion, Royal Victorian Regiment, 1st Battalion, Royal Australian Regiment, the School of Infantry, 16th Aviation Brigade and the 2nd Division. He commenced his current position as Command Sergeant Major Forces Command in January 2022. So Darren, thanks for joining us today. Uh, what a fantastic career we've seen to date. Why did you join the Army? Yeah, g'day Mark. Great to be here with the COVID again. Um, you know, I'm asked the question often, you know, why do I join the Army? And, and I try to think back uh, through my mind why that is. And I can recall right back from when I was really young, I'm told by about, I was about three or four years of age, now, why do you want to join the army? And for me, when I reflect back, it's all about just wanting to wear the uniform. But as I became a teenager, I realised that meant far more than just wearing the uniform. I actually realised I wanted to do something that was bigger than me. As a teenager, I didn't really appreciate what that was until I eventually joined the army and realised by being in the army, I'm able to serve my nation. So by drawing those dots together, I'm actually able to work out why I think I joined the Army and have served on to do 37 years, starting from wearing the uniform, being proud of that, to be wanting to do something greater than me, to actually serving the nation to make a difference. And you joined at 17, 18, 19? Yeah, straight from school. Wow, okay. And finished grade 11, 12? Uh, I, I left halfway through year 12. Uh, it was my 17th birthday on the 29th of July and um, passed my entrance exam and then by the 16th of September I was in. Let, let's, let's talk about uh, times back when you initially joined. All right, So you joined in a peacetime army. Uh, what was army like when you joined and how has it changed over your career? Yeah, so during that time, it was, it was during the 80s and the early 90s, which is what we often refer, time, refer to as, as the great peace that the Australian Army found itself in. Um, and when I think of that time in the 80s, um, it's through the lens of a digger. So that's, that's what I'm thinking right now. Um, so I didn't see a great deal other than we were doing lots of training. And it was, it was training that we, we weren't qualified in compared to these days when to operate a certain weapon system, you have to be qualified and so on. Back then, it was just go and grab an 84, grab a Mag 58, whether you're qualified or not. And you actually just got stuck into doing some weapon drills and other types of really innovative exercises. But then as I progressed as an NCO, I really realised I realised the Army was intuitive. Uh, it was doing what it knew from the gut. Uh, we were always in the field, long exercises of four to six weeks at a time, and that was all through the year. And we're able to focus only on a few tasks, which is a point of difference, I think, to contemporary soldiering. And those few tasks in my days was actually in the jungle or you're in open country doing live fire exercises. Um, 
one thing that is similar from back in the 80s to now, low numbers and low budget. Absolutely no difference between those times. What's different now is we're expected to do far more things in far more environments than when I was ever growing up as a soldier. I do think the army, this is with the lens of me now being a warrant officer, is far more calculated and clinical with how it trains. People are interested in the deep whys behind things and analysis is put into the roles, tasks, resources that we actually do. So whilst we are an army that is innovative and have some intuition, I think doing our daily business in an intuitive way is not the case now. We are far more calculated and clinical to be accountable to our resources. Yeah, I, I definitely take the point of being away uh, so much. I, you know, I joined straight into the 1st Brigade, which were mechanised at the time. We would go away for three or four exercises at Pucker, you know, not come home for four months. Plus, there was a lot of drill and also a bit of painting rocks. As a soldier, were there any examples of leadership that really resented uh, with you? Yeah, so I think back uh, when I was a, a, a probably a senior digger at the stage, this is in 1RAR, uh, and we, I had a platoon commander, I think about this often, we had a platoon commander that thought he was um, going to give, give the guys a good chance to express what their feelings were and what their thoughts were of, of training. And now, I think foolishly, that platoon commander allowed the whole group to actually be quite open with what they're saying to the point where uh, the soldiers were abusing and completely disrespectful and insubordinate to that platoon commander. He'd become so friendly that, I, that, that he'd lost the judgment and, his, and the acceptance of his position of leadership. And when I think about the relationship within the platoon after that, that bit session under the breezeway, uh, I saw that uh, there was far less trust in that platoon commander than there was beforehand. Now, I'm sure those soldiers would have, th would have thought those things about the platoon commander anyway, whether he allowed them to speak their minds or not. But the moment it was aired in public, actually allow, it undermined his authority within the platoon. So that one bad example has really sat with me throughout my career. Not that I don't want to appreciate what people think of my leadership, but I think there's a tactful way that leaders can, can apply to actually have some maybe 360 or 180 reflection on how they uh, interact and engage with the people in their organisation. Now, some good leadership examples, um, when I think back to when I was a, a junior NCO, was the relationship I'd built with my company sergeant major, uh, again in, in Delta Company 1RAR. Uh, we've been in the field for a long period of time and we had to do this, um, this navigation activity for about 15 kilometres to get to a, a, a checkpoint. Now, the CSM was not sure where to, uh, the route that we needed to take, but I said to him, uh, trust me, I've been here before, it was through the jungle, you just need to trust me, the ground does not uh, match the map, but we'll get there. And I could see in his eyes that he was worried. But thankfully, he gave me that trust and we got to our destination all those kilometres and hours later. But I really, uh, I look back and I appreciate the trust that he gave me, although he had no reassurance other than my word that I was going to get the team there. Another example, Mark, um, is with a, a company commander I had 
recently passed away. It was one officer, then Ma- Major Greg Hansom. Um, he was the OC at Battlewing Tully. Uh, the, what I take away from him was the, the innovative ways to solve problems. Uh, and because we're at Tully, I like to put this under a little umbrella of, of rat cunning. Now, he was a Battle of Coral veteran uh, from the Vietnam War, uh, a, an old and bold. He knew many things that, that, mo- that most of us um, have got no idea, uh, 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 tips of the trade. But some of the ideas that he came up with just opened my eyes to different ways of us being able to do things. For example, one, one time we went to Indonesia, somebody had forgotten to pack the, uh, gr- the practice grenade bodies for a, an assault grenade range. So he improvised and told us to go and buy a big bag of potatoes. And we strapped the grenade fuses inside of these potatoes and were able to do the assault grenade range with the Indonesians on that particular activity instead of not doing it all. And then a final uh, good leadership example that I'll, that I'll offer as I've gotten older into my career is uh, with a past RSM of the Army, uh, Warrant Officer Dave Ashley. And what I take from him is his impeccable way of telling a story and communicating with people. That's been an example that, that I've actually taken forward to, to practice and, and try to be the best communicator that, that I can be with all types of demographics, age groups and generations. Uh, let's talk about now your uh, promotions as we go through there. You were promoted to Lance Corporal in 1989. Going from private to junior NCO is a massive step. How did you handle the friendship versus command and authority and do you have any examples? I was promoted to, to Lance Corporal and then eventually to Corporal and I stayed within the same platoon. And often within our manning conferences we have at unit level, we like to move people from one subunit to another so that there is, we, we remove the risk of friendship within uh, that small team environment. In my case, I stayed in the same platoon and I actually find I grew strength and confidence from being able to stay in that same platoon. And, and as I think about the reason why that may be, and it wasn't such a risk, um, was I, I think the reputation I'd built as a soldier, as that digger, allowed for me to be accepted by um, now my subordinates, my, my, my mates the day before I'd become Lance Corporal, um, allowed me to be accepted by them. So um, I, I think our reputation and the character we demonstrate is important, that it's a whole of career outlook. It's just not from one rank to the next where now you're a different person, you've got to act in a different way. That, that uh, observance of values that leads to your character that eventually plays in reputation is essential. But I will say, Mark, uh, I do have one really, one really embarrassing memory of when I was newly promoted to a Lance Corporal where I was not showing tolerance uh, to one of my soldiers. And uh, now that I was um, knowledgeable about uh, the military law system, um, I charged this digger, raised the paperwork, um, and he eventually got charged, all because he didn't move his bed from a particular place under the breezeway at a time that I directed him to do it. Um, and if I'd have shown some tolerance and understood the reason why that was, or perhaps you know, counselled him in an informal way, I could have had the same effect. But the power of, a lan- of being a Lance Corporal immediately went to my head, I think, and uh, it's with embarrassment that I look back now thinking that I was quite immature with my application of the newfound power that I had. 
but but I'm still comfortable that in this environment of being within the same platoon did give me confidence and caused me to learn quickly from when I did make mistakes. Uh, let's talk about going up a bit now. Uh, the change in leadership as a soldier differs as we move through the ranks. What is the big differences between being a section commander and a platoon sergeant? That is a noticeable jump, Mark. You're exactly right. Uh, and, and I won't focus uh, much on the sergeant's mess other than say you do go into a new environment in the sergeant's mess. But I got promoted to, the sar- to sergeant when I was 25 years of age. I'd been in the army for eight years. Uh, I was promoted out of depot company at Singleton and went to a new battalion as opposed to the junior NCO where I stayed within the same company, within the same battalion. And the first thing that I realised, the first point of difference is the need for a wider network to be the most effective leader in support of a commander, that is a platoon commander. So that's a, that's a, that's a significant difference to when you're a section commander. The, another thing that I found uh, as a sergeant, I needed to have one eye up and one eye down. When I say the up, that's into the company headquarters and the one eye down is into the sections where as a section commander, I just needed to have both eyes looking across my four, five, six, seven, nine, however many soldiers within my section that I had, and just listen to some of the, to the orders that my platoon commander was giving me, and then just go and do what I wanted to do at the section level anyway. So that's something that a sergeant needs to learn quickly, how to, um, how to function within the, the environment of a company headquarters, and then how to influence and uh, move your sections to be able to achieve what is asked of that platoon. And, and the third point I'll identify as a sergeant, that's a real difference from section commander, is actually building a relationship with the platoon commander. Now this is new and it's something that the section commander doesn't uh, necessarily get involved in because the relationships the corporal has is primarily with the soldiers. You know where the orders come from, that is platoon headquarters, and you have your inputs and your discussions at that platoon headquarter level but then most of the planning's done, isolated platoon headquarters, orders are written, and then they're given to the sections and the seco just cracks on. In this case, the platoon sergeant is in the first situation, they've got to build a leadership relationship with a commander. That carries on when you get to your company, your unit, and then higher levels all the way to force of command, where you are partnering with an officer who is accountable as the commander. Being that sergeant where you are not the accountable commander as a section commander is, is a real point of difference and one that you need to grow into. Section commanders can always get away with being concerned about the results of their tactical decisions, but the platoon sergeant needs to be aware of the implications within the organisation. In this case, the organisation is quite small being platoon, but the implications roll into the company. The sergeant needs to be aware of implications as, a, as opposed to the results of a tactical decision or training that a corporal has. Also, I'll say, a corporal will easily be forgiven, but a sergeant will often not be forgiven. That'll be a person that'll be held to account or held responsible for decisions and actions of subordinates. So we, you speak about keeping the one eye up as well. Um, as we do hit the rank of a sergeant, we start to not only develop those below us, but also above us. What ways do you believe you have assisted in the development of some of your leaders? So with the the question about leadership development, the the first perspective I'll offer, Mark, is uh, through the lens of when I was a sergeant. Uh, I I found the development there is based around skills, where 
uh, as that senior soldier at the tactical level in the, as a platoon sergeant, I was able to introduce better ways to make tactical work better or easier. So as an example, doing lots of work in the jungle in those, in those years. So I knew how to roll up the hoochie cord. I knew how to mark out track plans and perimeter plans and that sort of thing. So I was able to give lots of tactical know-how, that rat cunning to the section commanders and diggers because I was able to share time in their pits and on gun pickets with them. Now as a warrant officer, I was going to the warrant officer class two and class one rank. I found an early example of leader development came when I was a, a company sergeant major with Ozabat 7, that was 5-7 in East Timor in 2002-2003, where I, I, I sent out a questionnaire to my, all my NCOs to identify their posting preferences. Now when I got these back, I realised that the, the NCOs, and in some cases the platoon sergeants, didn't really have a good understanding of what posting preferences meant in order to develop their careers. So over the next month or so, I toured each of the combat outposts uh, and, and gave face-to-face -face education of small groups of NCOs up, uh, up to uh, you know, groups uh, that, that were all located at those uh, combat outposts to educate them about the way individuals should develop their career so they can be a better leader to attain um, higher positions at platoon and company levels. Now, as an RSM, I found um, that my, my experience at the organisation level allows me to develop programs that can actually assist individuals, teams and groups and they're more frameworks than they are uh, individual sessions that make people better. Some great examples there, Darren. How important is the development of our people? Yeah, developing people, Mark, is essential with everything that we do as leaders. And it should be something that is planned as part of a, a leader's uh, daily interaction with people, but also form, in my view, should, should form part of their leadership profile and their philosophy. For me, uh, I believe in a philosophy of coach and develop. I believe we should do that going in two down in ranks, whilst knowing what our one up want us of us and understanding what our two up requires of us. By understanding what our people are capable of and what their potential is, allows us to match that to what our higher leaders and organisation desires from us. So further to that framework, following a trained, a training, coaching and mentoring philosophy, I basically believe soldiers are trained, corporals are coached, Sergeants are both coached and mentors, and warrant officers are mentored. Now, when each of those ranks go into a new role or exposed to new skills, coaching and training is applicable, but as far as a generalist, whole-of-career leader at those particular ranks, I believe people fit mainly within a either training, coaching, or mentoring aspect of their leadership as their leadership grows. And then as proficiency grows, so too does their expertise. But expertise requires knowledge, experience, and judgment, all of which come with time. So to say in my mind that soldiers are mentored, I don't think is a true application of what mentoring is meant to, because the idea is a mutual sharing 
of knowledge or experience. Now, if one person has not been exposed to a particular knowledge or experience, then they can't participate in that mentoring approach to learning. They would be most interested in a particular skill outcome or a result required of a skill application, but that's not a mentoring effect. That's a training or a coaching effect. So that's why uh, I've, I follow that coach and develop two down, know one up, understand two up, whilst training, coaching, and mentoring. Now, mastery, unfortunately, is not enjoyed by most people. Many will get to the expert level, not everybody, and unfortunately, not everybody will be masters. So you spoke a bit then about uh, mentoring. Who was or is the most influential person from your career and why? Yeah, thanks, Mark. I won't call out a particular individual uh, but, but I'd rather offer the traits of someone that has been influential in my life uh, through a long period of time and somebody that I continue to go back to. And, and while I th when I think about this question, um, you know, who has been the most influential person in my life, I like to think that that person continually reaches back into my life or I go back to that person frequently in, as opposed to just one-off key points in my life. So my first point, um, my first attribute is that the per this person is highly professional. And within that, I wrap up the whole world of competence, proficiency, mastery. My next one is the person uh, is a great listener and communicator. Those two things, whilst separate, are closely interconnected and you, need, you can't have one without the other. Importantly, uh, this person uh, has shown tolerance for my mistakes throughout my career uh, to allow me to learn in a safe environment, realising that I beat myself up when I make my mistakes and is able to point out those mistakes in a way that still shows respect and acknowledges that I still had potential. And then the final attribute is... Uh, this person has always been and is compassionate. Uh, and that's compassionate to things that happen in my private life. Uh, and the example I'll use is the recent passing of my wife who died of cancer in October last year. This person were, and his wife, I should, should add there, Mark, uh, are so closely connected to the lives of my children and myself that this compassion just adds a complete new dimension to being an influence, a positive influence in my life. So I won't call out a name, but those four attributes are what I look for, not only in this person, but all people who I would classify as a great leader. Wow, Darren, it really sounds like you've had some really good people in your life. Uh, that's fantastic. Uh, let's go on a bit now. Um, throughout your career, you have given lots of advice to commanders. Sometimes this advice is not taken. How do you approach that? And when is enough advice enough? So initially, Mark, if I apply my lens again at when I was a corporal and I reflect now, I actually define my view of how I saw other leaders not accepting my advice as arrogant. And I'm embarrassed to say that. And when I think about why I think I was arrogant as that corporal when it came to other leaders potentially not accepting my advice, come down to immaturity. 
And you know, some of the listeners have probably heard of uh, the adolescent mind and how you know, in, in those males predominantly it develops through to about the age of 26 or 27. I can understand why I was immature and why I was so narrow-minded. As a senior enlisted leader now, I understand leaders take and weigh up all information they have available to them to make decisions. And there are many ways to do things. And as followers, so that is all of us, even leaders are followers within their respective careers. We make our observations, we contribute to the things that we're asked to provide input to, or if we have a certain level of expertise, we're active in offering that advice, and then we execute with our full expertise and potential. So not always will commanders and leaders take on our advice, but it is an important avenue that those same leaders have to measure what their judgment is in their minds so they can make the right decision. Not always will our ideas be taken up. Sometimes a part of our idea will be included into a plan. Other times it may be all of your plan, whichever it is. Once the decision's been made and our observations have been offered and we don't hold back on our observations, we then execute with our full expertise and potential. So does a good leader want a yes man? Or someone who will challenge them? So I think culturally, Mark, Australians do not tolerate yes-men. We are, we are expected, however, to have our own views based on our training and experience. And let me add there, education. I personally expect all soldiers to raise their views, but understand that our leaders and commanders have more information than what is in the minds of each individual. If an order isn't illegal, fraudulent, or unethical, then get on and do it. During the planning stage is the time for us to express our views to our leaders and commanders so the plans can be formed on every bit of available information that we have. If a subordinate leader, leader holds off on providing those observations and the plan is designed, and then afterwards we offer that as, if only we had have done it this other way, boss, then we've, had, we've done a misjustice to that decision and planning process. So yes, men, I don't think are culturally part of being Australians, but we need to be confident and speak up at the right time. Yes, we should be open to emergent issues and adjust off the line of march and not just roll with, with the punches or roll with the general direction of way things are going because it seems right or we've always done it that way. We still need to be inventive creative, based off doctrine, based on what our gut says as well, that's important. But if things aren't being done the way you would like them to be, but they're moving in the direction that we know they should be, there is nothing wrong with allowing that commander's plan to go ahead. And Darren, what are you most proud of from your military career? For me, this is easy to answer, Mark. And it's the deployment that the Mentoring and Reconstruction Task Force 2 uh, based on the one hour hour battle group achieved in Afghanistan in 2009 and 10. You know, that group that deployed uh, to that country where there was, was much conflict brought out the best in our people. Um, you know, they were involved in some dreadful circumstances. We had lots of casualties on the battlefield, you know, just listening and seeing soldiers on the operating table um, being so brave 
uh, as they're about to go into surgery, not knowing uh, what's going to happen with themselves, uh, to the point where once they're recovered, go back on patrol uh, in good order, in great spirit. And then seeing the camaraderie within the teams and groups throughout that battle group gives me great pride to see a large number of Australians come together uh, in a country so far from home, but all united to achieve the same thing. Now, their strength came from them being Australians and them doing it for their mates, maybe not necessarily doing it for the country of Afghanistan, which I'm sure most or all people had in the fore of their mind. But to look left and right and be the best you could be for the Australian that was to your left and right gives me great pride to know that that our battle group did everything they could to support that nation going through their their presidential elections in the year war there, as well as put their lives on the line every day. Um, you know, many people still call me to this day uh, to have conversations about things that happened back in, in 2009-10 or just to check up on each other and to see that camaraderie continue. And I know it happens in many other smaller groups within uh, the one hour battle group and all the other battle groups, you know, for that reason, uh, people just reaching out and showing concern for each other. That gives me great pride. And when I know that that exists, not just within a deployed group, but it exists within our natural parent unit organisations, uh, it gives me, it, it makes me happy to know that soldiers are proud of being an Australian soldier. And for the, one of the reasons that I joined when I was a young fella to wear the uniform. Fantastic. So you talk about mateship there. Uh, what about family? How important is family to our military careers? Uh, family, I would say, is critical. And I'll use that word deliberately against the definition of without it is mission failure. Uh, in the first instance, I think family is seen as those that are married with children. But certainly the people that aren't married, all our younger soldiers, all our single soldiers, their family extend, extends into their, their mums and dads and their brothers and sisters and so on. So the term, the use of family is equal whether you're married or not. But without the support of your family, the military member is a far uh, weaker person than they would be unless they had the support of somebody or some people close to them. And I spoke just a short moment ago, Mark, about uh, with my wife passing away last year. And it was with the support of, uh, of my family that's allowed me to continue serving and be strong. And I could have easily uh, taken a knee. I could have easily chosen to take uh, long service leave. But I knew the place that I needed to be was here in my unit, was to be in the army and Having done 37 years, I have a far wider extent of a family and I see that as the family of army. And whilst that may be cliche, uh, when you're someone that has joined the army from the age of 17, uh, whose some of my other family members have passed away, my wife most recently, after 30 years of marriage, I see the army is my family. And it's the support of those that are related to me in blood 
and those that are related to me by wearing the uniform and the rising sun that I see is essential in my life for making me a strong, resilient person. So to all those listeners uh, that are wearing the uniform, uh, I feel that I'm connected to you in some way. For those that aren't wearing uniform and maybe our interested civilian enthusiasts uh, in the profession of arms, uh, I can reassure you that the strength we get from any person, whether related or not, that gives us uh, support, makes us better in service. Wonderful answer, Darren. That, uh, that sort of wraps up what we come here to do, but I wouldn't be from the Cove if I didn't ask you, what is your most favourite Cove article? That, that is a difficult one to answer. And um, you know, I've uh, thankfully been published several times by the Cove and done uh, some videos and podcasts, so I won't say mine. And I look over my shoulder and I have um, the, uh, the, the first Cove Award for uh, publishing... Frequent, uh, frequent Contributors Frequent award. Contributor Award. Uh, and, and that was humbling to me because I, I drew great pride from being able to give back some of my thoughts uh, to the audiences that were so interested in reading what I had to say. But what, what I, I don't have a particular article I'd like to offer here um, but what I do get a real kick out of is hearing and reading the thoughts of our NCOs, our warrant officers in particular, and our junior officers. The great ideas that that group have and can offer to the profession of arms makes us a better organisation. And the Cove gives us a platform where we can air those. So they're, this, they're not tucked in some computer or a notebook because we've been thinking about them on a dark night on exercise, we can come home and express our views in a coherent, informed and educated way so that others can include those ideas in their thoughts. And with a collective growing and understanding of those ideas, we can actually make a difference and create change by making those ideas that come to fruition. So I encourage all NCOs, to think of something that's important to you, that's of interest to you, research it, bounce the ideas amongst your peers so that it makes sense and get it published. Send it into the cove and let others know what you are thinking. We want to be creative. This is a time where we need to move forward. We want to make our organisation the best it can be and we do that by demonstrating coherent thought that makes sense and makes a difference. That's a wrap, Darren. Once again, thank you for supporting The Cove and thank you for taking the time to conduct this podcast. We look forward to some more articles from you in the future. Darren currently has 22 articles on The Cove and if you want to read them, go to cove.army.gov.au and type Darren Merch into our very user-friendly search bar and the first result will be his frequent contributor article which has links to all 22 articles. To our viewers... Thanks for listening, and don't forget to download the Cove app. It's PME in your pocket, anywhere, anytime.